We will be reading out of Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 13. And that says, Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give anything, because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? You may be seated. Joseph, thank you. We thank God for your faith in the Lord Jesus and for allowing our paths to cross. Begin the day with two stories. Uh, back in 1936, a little girl, on behalf of her Sunday school class, wrote a note to Albert Einstein inquiring whether uh, scientists pray. Einstein, within five days, uh, responds, and embedded in that letter is this, a scientist cannot be inclined to believe that the cause of events can be influenced by prayer. Now, what's so interesting about that is that Walter Isaacson, who's written a highly regarded biography of Einstein, has looked at all of Einstein's letters and has, in fact, concluded uh, that Einstein believed in a personal God. That if you take everything he ever wrote, that you take him at his word, he seemed to believe in a God who was involved in the universe and who was personal. So it's as if Einstein felt deep down that prayer to God, there was something in him that found that, dare we say, natural or the right thing to do, but publicly, especially as a scientist, that it would not be permissible for him to put his belief in prayer in writing, especially to a young girl in New York. Similar story, although in our own time, written by a lady named Dana Tierney, January 11, 2004, in New York Times Magazine, and what she writes about her and her husband, John, she said, John and I had abandoned our childhood faith long ago and adopted an atheism. Until in 2004, John, uh, being himself writer for the New York Times, is called off to do some reporting in Iraq. And as Dana and her small son, Luke, about four or five years old, they're watching TV um, at night, and there's a wedding. And it's a wedding of a soldier who had recently returned from Iraq. And the soldier goes on to interview, says, you know, I didn't think I was going to make it out alive, and detailing all these scary things about being in Iraq during the war. And as Dana looks down at her small son, she sees him doing this. And she says, are you praying? And the boy says, no, 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 I'm not praying. 
And on TV, the soldier's going on and on about the danger and wasn't sure he's going to make it home. And once again, the boy's hands were folded. To find, Mom says, are you, are you praying? Till finally the boy says, yes, yes, I was praying for Dad that he would come home. Now, Dana Tierney, to her credit, in this article called, called Coveting Luke's Faith, does not mock this. She says, it occurred to me that deep inside each one of us, there is a longing to pray to a higher power, to the one who made us. And me, in my secular dogmatism, had tried to dampen something that he knew to be right and he knew to be a source of comfort. The boy's dad came home. I'm not sure where they are today. The point of these stories is this, is that we all know that prayer, uh, you see it, something happens, you know, Uvalde, Texas, everybody's, you know, cranking out, you know, pray, pray, pray. And yet we find it incredibly unnatural. And even for those of us who have been Christians a long time, I think we'd say we have an unhealthy prayer life. I've never met anyone, I ask you the same, have you ever met an older saint who says, you know, I spend way too much time in my life praying? <laughs> say, you never meet that. It's always, I have a very difficult time praying, I find it unnatural, I don't know how to do it, and I need help. And so we're in an excellent position today because we come to Luke chapter 11, the beginning, which might be the most extended discourse from the Lord Jesus on what's happening in prayer, how we ought to think about it, how we should do it, and what a refreshing place to start. I'll draw your attention. Luke 11 and verse 1, Jesus himself prayed, and he prayed a lot. Luke, in particular, of the four biographies of Jesus, records the Lord praying more than any other of the Gospels that he prayed at all the crucial moments of his life. And as the disciples observed Jesus praying, I'm comforted by that little request from this synonymous disciple, Lord, teach us to pray. See, we're not alone. Lord, we need help in this area. Help us to see it more clearly. Help us to do it on your terms. Now, Jesus, as he does often, replies graciously and with clarity. He doesn't rebuke the disciples, say, you morons, you've been watching me, you know, you can't, how do you not know how to... No, he says, when you pray, and gives the very simple sample prayer that many of us, say many here, maybe you're here today, so I haven't been in the church a long time, you probably know that prayer we did in the communal reading, right? The Our Father, it's sometimes called the Lord's Prayer. Now, what about the Lord's Prayer? Some of you are, uh, you know, thinking about our communal reading, and you say, why was it in the communal reading uh, there were some parts that aren't in Luke's version of the Lord's Prayer, and if you know the Bible really well, you say Matthew records the Lord's Prayer, and it's slightly different, and it's in a different context, and some would say, well, you know, this is all just made up by the editors. Here's, you know, my response to this. Hope it's helpful. Any preacher, including the Lord Jesus, would have repeated his main points often. All of you have had the, the misfortune of listening to me for nearly three years. You say, well, Shaw repeats himself a lot. I say, well, I, I try to repeat the points that, that are uh, important as the Bible would present them. If someone said, well, he said it a little bit differently, he's contradicting himself, say, no, you're trying to make your point with clarity. That's what Jesus is doing. He's, it's the pattern he's laying out. The Lord's Prayer is not, uh, you know, magic in the sense you have to say the words exactly in this order and exactly this way. Is that what Jesus is saying? No. He's giving us a pattern to follow as to how to think about coming to God in prayer. So let's begin with that first word, a shocking word. Again, you're used to this. It's not so shocking, but I want to recapture 
uh, how this would have landed on the first century ear. Jesus says, when you pray, say, Father. Say, I'm no expert on the ancient Near East, but I think enough to say that no ancient Near Eastern religion would have proposed with such audacity to come to God as Father. Say, the word behind Father in the Greek, we know, you know how Jesus prayed elsewhere, say a word that we probably you know, say it would have been Abba. And it's interesting how across all languages, isn't it, that that uh, kind of phonetic structure is there. Uh, Baba, uh, Daddy, Papa, Abba. You could say, <laughs> Jesus says, when you pray, begin with, hey, Dad. Now, some in the room today, you just know, a room this size, say, I don't know about this. My dad wasn't that likable of a guy. He wasn't that good. I don't know about this stuff as God is Father. But we're invited in this prayer, it is an invitation to see God as a loving and caring, attentive Father. He is the Father that we would all want to have, and He is the Father that those of us who are fathers should strive to be like. And Jesus says, when you pray, you posture yourself in such a way of intimate communication with a loving father. And it's an invitation to do just that. So when you pray, think of a father who's attentive and loving. Now the movement in the prayer, look again, verses two to four, the movement's uh, fairly obvious, just really two, two points in the structure. Uh, first, it's directed heavenwards towards God, and then verses three and four are thinking about our relationship with God. So it begins with God and moves to us. That's the pattern. Jesus is a good pattern. Think of God first. And that first bit, what does it mean? Father, hallowed be your name. That word hallowed, don't use it very much, uh, if at all, but it means set apart. That those of us who are disciples of Jesus, that we follow him and have been reconciled to the Father, that we do care about how God's name is treated, uh, whether he is represented accurately. Remember back to the Ten Commandments about using the Lord's name in vain. You know, people say, well, I don't know if I can, you know, I'm no theologian. Say, I got news. Everybody's a theologian. An atheist is a theologian. He's just a terrible theologian. And so we here would say, Father, we are those who want to have regard for the holiness of your name. And refreshingly, that God the Father is wonderfully different from everything else. <laughs> you look out at this world, <laughs> there's so many sad things, polluted things, nasty things, insufficient things. I mean, you pick your word. Say, is God just another thing? You know that line, well, you know, if God made everything, who made God? He's just another thing? No. Start of the Lord's Prayer says, Father, we come to you as your children, recognizing that you're set apart, you're wonderfully different, and you've invited us as your children to communicate with you because every relationship depends on communication. So an invitation from a loving Father that we would recognize who God is and in turn in a minute who we are. So that's first, hallowed be God's name. He's different. Are we mindful of that? Secondly, your kingdom come. Can you see that? Your kingdom come. What does it mean? A Christian is in this wonderfully adventurous position of being in the already but not yet. So if we've surrendered to King Jesus, you're a member of our church, we know, right? Your testimony said, I recognize that I need Jesus as my King and my Savior, my Lord. We've surrendered to him. In a way, 
we're in the kingdom because we follow King Jesus. But we also recognize there's a not yet component to being in the kingdom now. We're already subjects of the king, but the not yet is the anticipation of when Jesus comes again, he's going to make all things new. He's going to restore all things. He's going to enact perfect justice that is longing, the deep longing of our hearts. That there's a time coming when the kingdom will be won and be restored. Are we those who really, as Christ followers, really want God's kingdom to come? Do we view ourselves as a church that we come, hour a week, get the content, that's it? Or is it, as subjects of the king, the way we interact as brothers and sisters, and when we go out into the world in our different contexts, that we actually bear witness to the kingdom, albeit a very small slice of the kingdom, but we go out and we're kingdom witnesses, knowing one day the Lord Jesus will return and all things will be put right and judgment will be delivered. That's the prayer. Say, Father, I'm coming to you as your child. Help me recognize you're different, wonderfully different. Help me to think of your name today before my own. And Lord, may your kingdom come. And by all means, us as a church, may we do all we can to bring as many as we can into this kingdom. That's how the prayer starts. So Jesus teaches us how to pray. It's an honest question. Begin coming as children to a father, thinking of him first. Now, the second move, really verses 3 and 4, that it then moves to us, and in a, in a, kind, in a way that makes us, I, I think, a little bit uncomfortable uh, in our context, and that is that the prayer teaches us that we are dependent. Dare I say, the prayer gives us the words of weakness, that when Jesus says pray, pray like this, you're, you're saying the Lord's Prayer, you're saying, okay, I got God, he's up there, he's hallowed, he's going to usher in the kingdom, and then it, and the first thing, you know, one of the things you're going to read, right, is that forgive us our sins. So if you pray, forgive us our sins, then there's an acknowledgement that I'm what? That I'm a sinner. That I'm on the wrong side of God's moral economy that I need help from the outside. Now, I'll say to you, as I've said many times, of all the Christian doctrines, the one I personally have least difficulty with is this diagnosis, diagnosis that I'm not a perfect guy. Uh, I'm, well, I'm well aware of that. Say, so why do we need forgiveness? Well, for one, given the option, I'd rather look out for myself than think about God, that I'd rather do life on my own terms, that I'm selfish, I love myself a lot more than I love you, certainly a lot more than I love my neighbors, and... I've hurt people in my life, and on and on the list goes. And there's a recognition on the part of a true disciple of Jesus that we need to be forgiven in the moral economy and that we're dependent not on ourselves there, but rather a voice from the outside. So we express our need in the, in the need to be forgiven. And likewise, then the second half there, verse 4, that we also would in turn receive help to forgive others. As is often confused here, Jesus is not saying, God will forgive you if you forgive others. Because that would then be what works-based. Oh, it depends how good I am at forgiving all of you is the degree to which Jesus forgives me. Say, no, forgiving other people is the evidence that we're really disciples. You see, the forgiveness for other people is going to flow out of the reality of just how much I've been forgiven in my own neediness, my own messiness and sinfulness. And out of that, there's latitude, hopefully a gracious, forgiving latitude in the life of the Christian 
to love others and to forgive others. So he's linking those. He says, we pray to God as different, that his kingdom is coming again, that we're in a position of humility before God, that we need to be forgiven, and by that forgiveness, we're marked out as different by how we overlook the speck of sawdust in our neighbor's eye, right? So we pay more attention to the plank in our own eyes than the speck of sawdust in another's eye. What else? How about again looking at verse 3? Verse 3, give us this day our daily bread. In a congregation like ours, we probably don't pray this that much, or if we do, we don't mean it. I bet many of us, 98%, maybe more, you've not worried about your next meal. Say, gosh, I don't know where it's going to come from. And we read this and we say, uh, you know, yeah, God, I guess so, but I'm, I'm doing just fine. Supplied it all myself. Plenty of savings to eat for a very long time. And that, my friends, is a real danger, a real danger for our hearts and minds. If we get to a point where we think that we have what we have because we've outdone all the others, instead of having a humble posture underneath our sovereign God, who in fact, right, has been far and away abundantly kind to a congregation like ours, and we do desperately need to recapture our dependence upon him for our daily needs. God, you've provided everything. Every good gift has come from you, not because I've outpaced somebody else, but because of your kindness. So we see God as forgiver. God as provider. Before I move on, just one other thing I'd like to hit, and this one you can talk about in your small groups. What kind of stuff is it okay to ask God for? So we all say, okay, verse 3, give us this day our daily bread. We could say that's a basic need. It's appropriate to ask God for our next meal, for clothes, for shelter, those needs. But we got to draw the line to these other desires that might just not be as, you know, spiritual. So, you know, I'll use a silly example, something like a parking place. <laughs> Is it okay? Say you're going down, you're running a little bit late. Is it okay to ask God, can you provide me a parking place? Some of us will say, well, that's not, you know, that's not a real need. You've you got to leave that, you know, leave that on the outside. I would say, and again, you talk about this kind of thing in your small group. I think there are too many instances in Scripture where Jesus says, ask anything. You read John 14, he says, ask anything. So you're going downtown, you're running a little bit late, you say something like, God, I'd really, I know, I'd love it if you could provide a convenient parking space because of my circumstances. I think the, the point behind that example is that we, we actually tend to over-spiritualize prayer. The over-spiritualizing of prayer is, you know, you're praying for all the, 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 the kind of spiritual things, but don't you see that there's an invitation to the believer to pray for even the most mundane things. That prayer, far from being an out there thing, becomes the most practical thing. That we can ask God for the wants and desires. He wants us. He's a loving father. In the same way you'd approach a loving, attentive father, we can, are invited to come to God with these kind of desires, even the little ones, even the ones that are, are, are uh, on a day-to-day basis. Now, I'm going to come back to that in a minute, but that, that's my answer. Think about it in your small groups. Do you draw the line somewhere when Jesus says, ask anything? And I'll show you where I do think maybe, maybe we do draw the line. So God is our forgiver. 
He is our provider, and notice again verse 4, he is our protector. Those three always go together. You'll see God is forgiving as provider and as protector, and lead us not into temptation. Now, some would read this, is God the one who, you know, causes evil? Does he drive us to do bad things? That's not what this is saying. What this is saying is in a fallen world of great temptation, that we need God's strength by his spirit both to avoid arenas where transgression is likely and when we find ourselves in those arenas to have the courage and the fortitude to follow him. Say, what am I talking about? Well, you're on a business trip. You have a lot of options on the business trip. There's a lot of fleshly impulses. There's a lot of cultural current that's telling you what to do. Does something in the life of the Christian, right, kick in and say there's an arena that I need to avoid here, or if I say I am in an arena to stand tall for the Lord Jesus? That temptation is very real, even for the most seasoned Christian. I remember my high school basketball coach. He was not a Christian uh, as far as I know, and I remember as a young man, he teaches us, boys, you're one bad decision away. And I said, that's a very good Christian line, isn't it? I am one bad decision of this week from never being in this pulpit again. And I bet you think about it, say you're one bad decision away from throwing away a whole lot of what you treasure, what you work hard for, what you loved. And if we, even as seasoned Christians, say, well, I've got it all together. I'm quite strong. I'm, you know, I've got, instead of saying, God, I really need your help because there's a lot out there and there's a lot of pull and I need your strength. I can't do it on my own. So God, forgiver, provider, protector. Now in this line of thought, I want us to look again at verses five to eight in what we call a parable. This can be a challenging parable, sometimes called the friend at midnight. Uh, what's going on here? I'll read it again. Jesus said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves? For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. This is a challenging parable. Luke records a number of parables that seem to work by negative example. One, one example would be Luke 18, the persistent widow. So we, we're, we read this, and what, where does our mind tend to go? Our, my mind tends to go to the fact, is Jesus comparing God the Father to the irritated man who's woken up in the middle of the night? That God's like this grumpy guy who says, I can't be bothered now because I'm in bed with, uh, you know, my, my kids and it's way past hour. Is that the comparison? Say, that's not the comparison. The comparison is much more relevant and challenging to us. That is that Jesus is teaching us, in fact, to be like the man who goes to his neighbor in the middle of the night. And you'll notice that word, strange word in English, we don't use this word a lot, but the impudence. It's a very good word for what's uh, behind the English here. Impudence means a kind of reckless brashness, a, a kind of boldness that borderlines on impropriety. Um, the, the neighbor has not been polite uh, in making this request. And so you can see how this 
might land in a congregation like ours? Is it easier for us, you make it personal, is it easier for me to lend help or to ask for help? I will tell you, in my pride, it's a lot easier for me to lend help than it is to ask for help. Because when somebody asks me for help and I can lend help, I'm kind of thinking, well, they see me as somebody who's got it all together. I'm well-resourced. I'm here. They're down there. They've asked me. I, I can help them. What's really hard for me is saying, I need help. It's even harder for me to ask help when I know I've really, really, really inconvenienced somebody. And when my ask, in this case, is not for one loaf, but for three. Jesus is teaching us to be shameless, if you will, in our prayers to God. God is not like the irritated man, but we're being invited, right, to even in our polite society where it's easier to lend help than to ask for help, He's teaching us to go to God at all times with all things. That's the point of the parable. Say, there's no hour that's too late. There's no hour that's irritating to God. But we're to be like the person when we have this hesitation to say, is now really the right time to ask? I'm kind of hesitant. I'm looking out for my pride. Jesus is saying, no, ask, ask. Go to your loving Father. And so, friends, I say again, while we cringe at this example and why we insulate ourselves with our prosperity and our self-sufficiency, I pray as a congregation we can recapture a little bit of the dependency and the humility with which we're to come to our Father. So Jesus teaches us to pray God first, then us. We adopt a posture, dare I say, of neediness. Now finally, how and in what manner does God answer prayers? I'm focused here really on this famous promise. There's a promise attached to how we pray that, you know, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you. Jesus seems to say this a lot. How do we interpret this? So about prayer, I think one thing we can say for sure is one thing it certainly does is it's going to align, it's going to align my life more and more with, with God's life and his will that you can think of prayer as this great orienting activity. So when I go out and I listen to all the voices, I listen to the nooks and crannies of my heart, as Calvin said, what kind of things am I telling? Say, I got it together, I don't need help, world's about me, uh, life is short, do what I want. There's all these kinds of things. And then you come to the Lord's Prayer, right? And it's a drastic kind of bringing you into line to saying, wait a second, God's the center of the universe. He's the one who's in control. It's about his kingdom and not yours. You're a needy sinner who needs forgiven, and you can't even provide for yourself. And you see, I've been swung back into line. So prayer kind of lines us up with who God is and who I am. So that's a big part of it. It orients us. We're communicating. We're tapping in to our creator, our infinite creator. So what about, though, the things we ask for and how they're fulfilled? If I could make two qualifiers, two qualifiers and then an attempt at an answer, kind of. And this is delicate. I thought about leading with this fastball, but it might be offensive to some of you. But it needs said. Verse 9. The ask, seek, knock promise is good for who? See, that is good for the disciple. It is good for the person who has surrendered to the Lord Jesus, 
who recognizes his or her need and has been set right. So here's what I, I fear happens, that we've got a whole lot of cultural Christians who know enough of the Bible to be dangerous, you know, say, oh, I know that bit, you know, ask, seek, knock, and I, you know, I prayed, I prayed to God for this, and it didn't, I prayed once, it didn't come true, your God's a phony. Say, well, the, the promise of ask, seek, knock is conditional upon the fact that the person has dealt with, that is, Jesus has dealt with their own sin and need for reconciliation. Now, whether God hears the prayers of a non-believer, I'm, you know, he's omnipotent, you know, omniscient, so God, God, of course, hears them, but we know in Scripture that there's always, God is speaking to those who've taken, who've received Jesus. So the promise is given to those, again, under, under the Lord, to the disciples. Secondly, that when we say, and this is where I'm going back to the parking place thing, when we pray for anything, that my prayer requests, you know, Ryle was right, great 19th century bishop of Liverpool, uh, he was right, says, what a person prays for tells you an awful lot about their heart. So, personally, I would love a sports car. I don't think that'd be healthy for our congregation if I was in a very, say, I would, I, nothing wrong with sports cars, I'd love that. So, I, I think, you know, do I pray for that? But if I do, I have to ask myself in that moment, am I more concerned about myself or am I more concerned about God's kingdom? And I think that's always the check. Is it okay to ask God for anything? Absolutely it is. He's our loving father, but I also, God's made it clear that my agenda ought to be his agenda and not mine agenda, that my, my prayer requests shouldn't show my earthly priorities but my priorities insofar as that I'm a child of God and his kingdom is being advanced through uh, my life and through the, the life of this church. So those are the two qualifiers, the ask, seek, knock, given only to those who've surrendered to Jesus, and with our request to always say it's about God's kingdom and not mine. Now, what about God answering? You think about, what, nine days ago now? After 50 years, various people praying, could somehow, in a post-Christian West, things be returned on matters of life in the womb? Highly unlikely, if you ask me. Highly unlikely that things were going to go back the other direction. You probably had lots of, you know, I picture the ladies in the 1980s, you know, when they were doing the prayer walks, and every week they'd get together and say, Lord, if there'd only be some way that, that the laws would change and we could be pro-life, that that act of justice could be ushered in in our land, and they pray every single day. You think, oh, here, you know, 2005, they're praying, they're praying, say, God, are you answering your... And lo and behold, after 50 years, God had answered that prayer. Say, 50 years is a long time to ask to answer a prayer. Yet God, in his good time, has done something that I would have thought was absolutely impossible. Can I push on something a little more delicate? Um, probably the most difficult pastoral issue that I, I just I don't understand. You can help me with this. Young couple at a church like ours say, fine young couple, love the Lord Jesus, can't have any children. They're praying. God, say, be fruitful and multiply. Children are a good gift from you. We love children. We'd want children. Many years, prayer goes unanswered. 
All kinds of people who don't want kids seem to have kids. What'd we do wrong? Now, fast forward, you say, in that couple's life, 15 years or so, and they've got a 13-year-old who they adopted many years ago. And they could be sitting back on their couch saying, you know, it was such a painful thing to not conceive children. We had a plan. And yet, God provided a child, and we realized that had we conceived, we never would have been able to raise this child. And say, I have no idea how to weigh those things. I have no idea how to explain to you the cause and effect of these things, but I will tell you that I think I've talked to enough Christians that would sit back to say, you know what, God has fulfilled us in ways. There's been pain along the way, but he has answered our prayers, and we have the hope, knowing that his kingdom is coming, that all things will be restored, and we'll look at our lives and say, God really did have our good in mind. That in the long run, God will make all things, all things new that he answers the prayers of the faithful, as many Christians in the room would say. So if I can wind this thing down, just say, I, I see a pattern. You say, you take nothing else away in the pattern of your prayer. You say, take all the Bible says on prayer. I think the pattern is something like this. Ask boldly and then surrender. Ask and surrender. God, I'd love this to happen, but I ultimately know you're good and that you have a plan for my life and you're gonna work it all out. I ask boldly, and then I surrender. Just like Jesus in Gethsemane. Gosh, this is going to be a very painful experience, not only physically, but bearing the wrath of the world. God, I'm not looking forward to this. Is there any other way? But if not, because there was no other way, Jesus surrendered. That's the model. We ask, we surrender. Some closing applications. Christian, member of Providence Church, when we say this prayer, may we really mean it. God, I want your name honored in our midst, in my life. I anticipate your kingdom. Help me to remember with my frustrations in this world that you're going to make all things new and that our job as Christians is to give a little slice of that, a little invitation of that for the short time we have to be this church. May we really want these things. May we be really dependent. Dare I say, may we really be those who are weak in our prayers on an all-powerful God who supplies us with our daily needs, who protects us from the arenas of temptation. Boy, do we need that. May we be vigilant in prayer. May we mean it. Another remark to the Christian. Someone will come in and say, you know, Pastor, I, God feels really distant. I used to feel close, and now I'm not so sure. You say, there's a follow-up question. Uh, what's your prayer life like? Well, I don't pray. Well, if Mallory and I never talked, we would grow apart. That prayer is not something we're to feel guilty about. Think of it as a wide-open invitation to come to a loving Heavenly Father who is attentive and good. That maybe if we're feeling, uh, tough word there, right? Feeling distant, or God is feeling distant, maybe the best place to start is on our knees asking God to, well, really pray for the things in the Lord's Prayer, cultivate a life of prayer. Also, believers, you see, unanswered prayers, they do provide clarity, and God has an eternal view, and we must always keep that in mind. There are things that are good, but the timing is wrong, and God knows that. Say, so you have trouble praying. I say, you talk to Jim and Cindy Whiteman. I've learned a ton from Jim and Cindy about prayer. I say, right there in our congregation, uh, you know, he's an elder. Say, come to one of the prayer meetings in your small group. Maybe you've bonded with somebody. Say, you know, I really, it's easier for me to just say short prayers with, with somebody that I, that I know that I've developed a Christ-centered friendship. Say, lots of avenues 
And again, I end where we started, that may we be a church, a prayerful church, a praying church, a church that's ever more keen to pray, coming to God as a loving Father, casting our dependence upon Him, always with an eye to the advancement of His kingdom. So if you would, I will uh, fittingly, and, and as we always do, end with prayer as the team comes back up. Lord, hallowed be Your name. May You be set apart in our lives and in our speech. Thank You, Lord. You're wonderfully different from all the stuff that we can encounter on a weekly basis. Lord, help us to be cheerful followers of you, knowing that your kingdom is coming, that all things will be made new, that you've given us the privilege of having a mission way beyond our earthly jobs this week. And Lord, we pray for your continued forgiveness, as we know we have in Jesus, for your provision for our daily needs, for your protection over our lives and our loved ones. And Lord, I pray that we wouldn't be sluggish in this area, but rather be excited to do so, to come to you, the invitation of a loving and attentive and good Father. Commit this matter to you. Teach us to pray. Strengthen us in Christ's name. Amen.